to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. Hi, I'm Daria Brown. Welcome back. This week we have part three of our interviews with Professional Child Development Associates in Pasadena, California. Welcome Dr. Brant Chamberlain. He is the Head of Child and Family Counseling Services at PCDA, which again is a multidisciplinary DIR floor time clinic. If you missed parts one and part two, we talked with Juliana Ross about the music therapy and creative arts department and with Julie Miller about the feeding and nutrition department. So check those out if you haven't. Um, today we're going to discuss the goals that clinicians address in their services to families. Brant's team provides amazing support and parent coaching to families with children who have more complex needs by doing two-part therapy sessions, including one-to-one -one parent support and also floor time sessions with parent and child. And he'll also tell us about a young adults group that focuses on self-advocacy and vocational exploration. Welcome, Brant. Hi, good, uh, good afternoon. How are you? Good, thank you. It's nice to hear about this amazing multidisciplinary clinic that you guys have. And um, I've heard already so much about it from the other two guests. So I'm really eager to hear about this. So tell us, um, tell us what your role is. I believe you're a clinical psychologist, a counselor. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, a licensed psychologist, um, and we supervise the uh, the child and family counseling department. Uh, we provide support for families where the there's a primary emphasis on our relationship issues, on the um, the emotion management, and and on um, uh, the the relationships. Um, and uh, we're very lucky to be uh, working in this multidisciplinary environment, as I'm sure the others have uh, discussed with you, um, founded by uh, Dr. Uh, Diane Cullinane and Mamie Weiner. Um, uh, 25 years ago, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary. Um, and I've been uh, with the agency for 15 of those years. Um, one of the things that's really great about being um, with the agency for that period of time is that there's some kids that I've uh, been able to see essentially grow up. Um, there's uh, it's oftentimes kids get involved with a variety of services and uh, we're able to follow them over many years. So I have one child that I've been seeing since he was four years old and he's almost ready to graduate from uh, high school. Um, so uh, that's, uh, it's exciting to see the changes. And then of course, we also have families that we see for shorter periods of time. Um, but- uh, That's amazing. Um, and I can imagine a lot of parents right off the bat are thinking, you know, tell us what you see, because I think you'll be one of the first people to say that, yeah, absolutely, we cannot know a child's trajectory when you meet them as a toddler. Right, that's absolutely right. And I have the um, added perspective of uh, having a child with autism myself. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, my son, Eddie, is 32 years old. And uh, so we've been able to uh, work through a lot. I wish I'd known about floor time when he was a kid. It would have saved us a lot of heartache. Um, but um, I'm so glad to be able to share the insights that, uh, that we've 
been able to glean over the years. That's wonderful. I didn't realize you were a parent as well. So that's, that's definitely gives you some inside perspective. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very much so. Um, you know, so much of what we do, it, because we are focused on the relationships and the emotions, um, a, a big part of what we do is so different from the way that people expect to parent in this world. The the culture tells parents that if you aren't, um, you know, manipulating your child to make them do the best that they can, um, you know, you're not being a good parent. If you're not taking away their electronics and, and uh, um, uh, you know, uh, giving them rewards and punishments. And so a big, big part of what we do with families is try to get away from the reward and punishment mindset. Um, yeah. So what do families mostly come to you for their diagnosis or what, what are the reasons that families are, you know, referred to your department? Right. Well, um, we do do some diagnosing, but for the most part, I prefer not to do diagnostics. I prefer to uh, work with the families. We work with families in a whole variety of situations, but it's not at all unusual for there have been to be a buildup of tension um, between the parent and the children. And um, oftentimes that uh, tension is something that the parents may be trying to resolve by, you know, lowering the boom or uh, setting uh, more rewards and punishments, um, take away all the electronics. And if I don't, you know, if they don't respond after I take it away for two days, we'll make it a week or, uh, and then they aren't able to follow through on that either. And so what we do in, in this case is try to help the parents um, reflect with the child. So using the milestones, we are first trying to identify the emotion. Um, and this is a system that um, Dr. Dea Cullinane put together. Um, she describes in her book, oftentimes what will happen is the family is afraid of the child having a tantrum. And so one of the things that we want to do is to help see the experience of working through a, um, a meltdown as being part of um, the child learning the resilience of the emotional management skill. So if the child's, ideally, we want to try and catch the uh, emotion before it goes over the top. So usually if a child's starting to get upset, you can see some, some minor things that are starting to build up and then it, the, suddenly they'll hit the roof, they'll just go through and it's a complete meltdown and all you can do is um, to come through that. But what we want to try and do is to catch the of through the back and forth of emotional um, exchange of uh, uh, emotional affect is to help the child to stay in what we call the um, range of functional distress. So being able to stay at this point where they can handle it and they can't, but but to have the back and forth where the parent is building in a calm emotional response. So the parent is recognizing the child's emotion, is attuning to them, and then is also building in, essentially interweaving the calmness with what the child's experiencing. So I saw this one time, uh, as you may know, we have a, a beautiful gym at uh, a PCDA, and, uh, but with it's generally used by the occupational therapist. And so I try to like, steer my kids away from it so that they because if they see it and they can't go in there they're going to be upset so one time uh, a, a 
a child was going by the gym, uh, his mom was holding him, he saw the gym, he really wanted to go, he couldn't, and you could see him starting to, he was gonna, he was gonna melt down, and the mom was right there with him, and she worked through it, and it was like, mm, you could see him let go of it, and then, and that whole process of managing the emotion is gonna give him a skill that he is gonna be able to use in other situations going forward. And also the parents then have built, um, have strengthened the bond uh, between them and their child in, in that process. Um, so catching, using attunement and co-regulation in that way is a um, very essential goal. Um, so I was looking at some of the, how this comes out in, in some of the goals that we actually um, work with and pulled out there's um one is a young woman i've been working with we've been making some progress and and one of the really important aspects there was that i had these ideas about things i thought was important for that young woman to learn but what i discovered was that the mother really knew how to connect with her child and so she says i want her to learn how to take a shower by herself she's going to respond to these um videos that are directed toward children. And my initial thought was, well, she's an adult, we wanna give her adult experiences. Um, but I, in this case, I trusted the mom. And so we brought in some videos. One of the nice things about working on Zoom is you can show a video from the internet and you can you know, talk about it and so forth. And um, she showed the, so we showed some videos that really entertained the young woman. Um, she would laugh at the funny parts and, you know, and she was, it was a way for us to get into this discussion about um, the personal hygiene. Um, so uh, trusting the parent, you know, when we say follow the child's lead, as a clinician, it's really important for us sometimes to follow the, uh, the parent's lead. So it, it sounds to me like there are some clients coming in who are adults and we're just trying to get them to be more independent with their living skills. But then there's other cases where you had alluded to in the introduction that there's families that have a lot of aggression or maybe behavioral issues with their children. Are you seeing angry teenage kids who maybe have had, for lack of a better word, inappropriate therapies that have put a lot of demands on them all their life and they're, you know, they have all this aggression in response as a defensive mechanism? And how does that look like? And, and how do you approach those types of situations? Yeah, it's, it's quite true that, that sometimes the, some of the methods that are used can create very angry situations. And in worst case scenario, um, I know my own son one time received a behavioral plan when he was in a group home. They were trying to get him to stop walking around so much and talking so much, but he needed to do those things. And so, and when he tried to call me during the session where the psychiatrist was uh, putting this plan into place, they took his phone away. Oh. And Right, which is illegal, um, but uh, they uh, in the, in that situation he was so upset that he left the house. He had privileges to walk around because he hadn't lost them all yet. Um, but all he could see ahead of him was a bunch of, of black marks on, and losing all of his privileges. He still had the privilege of leaving the house, and he went to the on ramp of a freeway. And his intention was to go onto the freeway and to get hit by a car. And he, uh, before doing that, he started pounding his head uh, against the wall. Uh, when he, when that was too much, he um, fell to the ground and 
uh, found some shards of glass and was was working at that on his wrist. And um, a motorist stopped by and saw him. And I got a call from the emergency room um, to pick him up. So the reason I'm bringing that up is to say that the misuse, misapplication of behavioral principles is a very, very dangerous thing, um, very harmful. Uh, and uh, the amount of damage that, that can be done to uh, young people um, should not be underestimated. And fortunately, one of the things I love about floor time is that it's such an opposite approach. What's really crucial there is our own, it goes back to this thing of attunement and co-regulation, is that we have to be aware of what our emotional, our effective communication is at the time that we are um, uh, setting a limit, setting an expectation, that kind of thing. In, um, in child and family counseling, the main thing that we do is work with families to help them enhance their communication and their understanding of each other in such a way that they're able to manage the strong emotions and, and uh, difficult behaviors in, in a way that is emotionally meaningful and that ultimately leads to stronger relationships in the family. Do you have a certain time, like I know everybody's different, but in general, do you feel like you can really get that ball rolling in a month, in six months, in a year? How long does it take to sort of get that process or how how typical, what is the typical length that you're sort of assigned to a case? Right, yes, yeah, great question. Um, you know, occasionally we get folks that we just consult with. And uh, in that case, I've, I've had uh, as short a uh, time as, you know, one or two sessions. Um, and uh, hopefully they've been able to, you know, glean something from that that is helpful. Um, but uh, more typically, I would say that uh, to, to really do some in-depth work with a family where they're going to see some lasting changes in their approach, um, I would say that probably about a year is is sort of minimum to get the, the sort of deep changes. Um, it's not at all unusual for us to work with a family for two or three years. And there have been some families that we've worked with for, uh, you, you know, longer than that. So depending on the, the situation. Do you ever have families that you've worked with for a few years and then you don't see them for a while and then adolescence kicks in and they say, yeah. help, we need more support again, and they come back? Yes, yes, and even uh, even had folks that have come back when starting college and said, uh, you know, that the anxiety about starting college is, is really so big that they that they need some help. Um, one example uh, the, uh, of a consultation, um, we consult with other uh, professionals, uh, with, you know, within the agency too. Uh, and one example would be um, a, a music therapist was asking about uh, a family where a seven-year-old child had been exposed to some media that was hyper-violent, very, very violent. Uh, uh, I hadn't heard of it, but uh, uh, there's a, a meme called Tricky the Clown. And and uh, this is very scary. It's child's having nightmares. And and, uh, uh, and I looked at some of the video and it is, it's pretty awful. Um, so talk about how to handle that. We talked about working with the parent, watching these things together with the parent to do some uh, uh, self uh, 
rating of the items so that if they're looking at something together, they could look at, you know, like a thermometer that would show uh, at one level things are, are, people are treating each other kindly and it's a green, you know, another one things are, things are getting nasty, but it's all pretend is yellow. And then this is really too violent. Um, I, I'm not going to watch this would be a red. And so um, helping the, the, uh, the child and the parents to look at these things together. And in the case where the child's already been exposed to something that's so violent, um, to, to be able to actually look at it with the parent and put it in a context um, is helpful in, in uh, is reducing that level of distress that the child's feeling about it. You made me think of an example that I heard when David Bowie passed away. Uh, I read something with his son, who's a filmmaker, and his son talked about watching A Clockwork Orange with his dad when he was only seven years old and how disturbing it was, but how David Bowie sat with him, he explained everything that was going on and made him feel so safe and help him appreciate the, I don't know if it was the cinematography or the storyline or whatever it was, but he said that was such a moving experience for him having gone through that with his dad, that probably sparked his interest in becoming a filmmaker. So <laughs> I remember being horrified because I remember seeing that movie when I was 13 or something at a friend's sleepover. And um, I think I, I don't even really remember what happened in it. Um, I'm sure it, a lot of it went over my head, but uh, seven's quite young. So <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that if you don't have a context to put it in with a safe, uh, trusted caregiver, it, it could be it, it may or may not be traumatic, but who knows what thoughts that can lead to that, you know, aren't sort of given a grounding to them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the importance of the, the parent and putting it into an emotional context and, and most important of all, you know, reassuring the child that they're safe and that they're loved and that they're, they're uh, well taken care of. Yeah, definitely. Do you want to tell us about the young adults group? Sure, yes, I'm super excited about the young adult group. Um, what we're doing, we're kind of building on what we did with the uh, teen club. We started up a teen club um, shortly after I arrived at PCDA and it's been real successful. Um, you know, we have the, the small groups meet together and, and, and do their own activities. And they also meet in a large group, um, which is great because they get to have a little bit of public speaking, a little bit of, uh, you know, hearing all these people. And they also get to interact with people that aren't directly in their groups. Now, ordinarily, when there's no pandemic going on, we meet on a weeknight to plan out activities. And, and then we meet in the community on the weekends. And over the last year and a half, we haven't been able to do that. Um, the young adults took a similar approach to the, to the teens, but we have more of a focus on vocational exploration. So that idea of discovering what's out there in the world of work and what do I wanna do and who's out there doing the things that I wanna do and how did they get there and, and what kinds of skills do they need? What kinds of preparation? What's important to know about being in the workforce? What, what's important to, to being successful on the job? And so um, an example with our, our latest group, um, uh, um, the, uh, the current group that we're working with, uh, some of the things that people identified that they wanted to do, um, one person wanted, 
wants to work in an office with a computer. Um, another person wants to be a nurse. Um, another person wants to be a cartoonist. Um, and another one wants to be a, a baby cuddler in an NICU. Um, and so we have uh, other things, uh, supporting police officers. We have a huge range of abilities in the group, by the way. We have folks who are, um, are very, very verbal and, and you know, really um, uh, functioning at a high level of abstraction. And we have other folks who are much less verbal. And so within each of the subgroups, we have some combination there so that there's a, um, there's a kind of a, a back and forth that goes on there. Um, but some of the things that we did, for example, one of the young people um, wanted to work as a Disneyland ride operator. Um, well, this particular uh, young man uh, is not uh, verbal. Um, he's, uh, he, he doesn't, he speaks, or he speaks very little um, and would probably have difficulty following the, the level of complexity, the amount of responsibility involved in operating a ride. Um, but um, as it turns out, what, part of what we do is um, in terms of identifying people to come in and interview with the, with the young adults is that we identify people who are in the, the, the family's networks that are doing similar kinds of work. And so uh, we have parent meetings where we say, here's a list of all these jobs that people are interested in. And does anybody know, have anywhere in your extended network of friends and family, people who are doing these things? And so it turns out, you know, one of the parents had worked at Disneyland um, himself and his wife had as well when, when, when they were young. And they knew some things about, you know, the inner workings of Disneyland and actually knew some people that are, are working there now. And as it turns out, a good role for a nonverbal person um, it would be to, to be a character. Um, the, the characters that walk around the park don't have to actually speak. They can do all of their communication nonverbally and they always have a handler with them because they, they need that every character out there has a handler that's making sure that the character doesn't get abused by the public and, and so forth. And so, Excuse me. So that's a natural thing that um, uh, you could essentially have that handler perform some kind of like job coach functions to some extent. Um, and the other thing is that because the costumes are, are so hot, hearing, hearing the inner workings of, uh, at Disney was that uh, they were able to tell us that the characters are only in costume for 10 minutes an hour. And then they go back to the break room. They're paid for the full hour, but they have 50 minutes off where they're not working and then they put the costume back on and they go back out and, uh, and have the interactions. Um, so this is an example of something that this young man, you know, had really not thought of, but um, now that's in the universe of, of possibilities um, for them. Um, and we've uh, had other uh, speakers, we've had uh, uh, a podcaster, come in to talk about uh, uh, comic books. And a couple of the guys had said they thought that maybe they could sell comic books as, as a, a, a job. What a great job, you know? So something you're excited about, something you're interested in. Um, one young man who loves birthday parties uh, wants to work at Chuck E. Cheese and 
helped to host the birthday parties at, at Chuck E. Cheese um, and was able to, one of the parents had worked at Chuck E. Cheese herself as a younger person and came in and talked about her experience there. And, and then they're also able to ask each person, you know, if they have any overall um, uh, suggestions about, or, you know, advice for life advice, you know, and, and so they've gotten to hear um, some, some very uh, pithy uh life advice. Uh, we had one uh, YouTuber who came on and uh, he's developed a, a, a channel about geography and he's got over 2 million subscribers at this point. Well, we don't necessarily have to go out there and get 2 million subscribers, but how do you take an interest and monetize it? How do you take an interest and, you know, something you're doing anyway, put it up there on YouTube and, and get people involved in, in what you're doing. Um, so hearing about all of these um, possibilities um, is, is really exciting. And another example would be, we have a young man who's nonverbal, who um, is very excited about cars and about uh, police. And so he's super excited about police cars, of course. Um, but uh, we had uh, a corrections officer, officer with the LA Police Department who um, came in and was able to talk about that, what they do as corrections officers, but also he was able to talk about what the community services officer does. And that in fact, if you want to volunteer with the police department, that's the person you would talk to. And there may be things that volunteers could do such as washing the, the police cars as an example. Um, so what a nice way to get a vocational interest and it may not be a paid job. You know, I, I, I'm not one who says everybody needs to have a paid job. Everybody needs to be doing something meaningful and uh, something that they are interested in and something that has some impact, a positive impact on, on people. Um, and if that's washing a police car, then, you know, what, what, a, what a nice way of getting involved in the community and taking the skills that you have um, to, do, um, to do some uh, good for the community. That's I'm, awesome. Yeah. We also look at life skills. I don't want to say we're only doing vocational. We're also looking mm -hmm. at life skills. So, for example, um, uh, some of the people in the group wanted to learn uh, about shaving. How do you shave? And so um, everybody has a, a somewhat different method. Because we were on Zoom, we were able to, with the parents uh, being uh, supportive, uh, we were able to go and every, people pulled out, well, this is the electric razor I use, or here's the, the manual one I use, or here's the, you know, here's my process and here's my process. And people were able to share back and forth and learn about the, these kinds of, of life skills. Uh, so another thing that they've been doing, we have friendship development is the third prong. So there's three prongs of the young adult group. And uh, with the friendship development, another thing we've been doing online, you may have heard of Kahoot. Um, what's fun about Kahoot is it's, uh, it's basically like a trivia quiz that, and you can do ones that people have already made or you can make your own. And a bunch of guys, and a bunch of the people in the group have really gotten into making their own cahoots. And so we'll, when we show up on Saturday, they say, I've got a cahoot, I've got a cahoot, I've got one. And so they go um, back and forth and, and it's great because we find out about their interests because they write the cahoot having to do with the thing they're interested in. And then we also have all the social interactions, all the fun and every time that there's a question, you see the new standings, the new ranks, you get points for how quickly you answer and those kinds of things. So it's a really nicely put together program that um, is, is really helpful while we're doing so much over Zoom these days. 
And do you facilitate the friendships or do they just sort of organically happen on their own? Yeah, what a great question. So I would say that there's some combination of uh, both. Um, we encourage them to share numbers with each other um, when they want to. Um, we had actually a, uh, and then there was also, uh, you know, the issue of sometimes uh, people might be starting to text with each other in ways that are uncomfortable for the other person. And so we have had to talk about texting etiquette, kind of some do's and don'ts, you know, keep your texts about the same length as theirs, you know, wait till they respond before you text back and, and you know, with, and having some flexibility in, in those kinds of things. But um, to be learning about kind of the nuts and bolts of how do you do these things. And um, so in an ordinary life, um, where we're going out in the community, there are more opportunities for them to do things in the community as well. We had, when we were um, going places, there was a rather exciting development that one young man who had developed a very good skill of getting around. In fact, when, when it came to planning how we were gonna get from here to here, he would frequently take the lead in showing people how to use a bus schedule, how to check the metro, how to see where places went and so forth. Um, so he got himself to all of the meetings and, and, and got himself home. He developed a friendship with a, a young man who was nonverbal who would not have been able to do those kinds of things independently himself. But going together with this other young man, they could do it together. So um, the one, uh, the, the nonverbal young man's parents would drop him off at the other, uh, at the other man's house. And they would then, the two of them together would ride the public transportation um, to get to the event and then would go home. And, and of course, we have to have really elaborate consents because of the fact that some of our young adults are driving. Some of our young adults are, you know, the, it, we have to know when they go home, are they allowed to go uh, a ride in a car driven by another young person? Are they, you know, are they, and in general, you know, uh, that doesn't generally happen, but um, we have a whole list of, of um, what is and is not allowed when at the end of the session, if we're out in the community, because some of the young people get home completely by themselves and some of the young people need to be uh, picked up. Um, and then we also have to look at what about conservatorship? So if they're conserved, then the young person's conservator has to um, sign those consents. If they're not conserved, then it's the young person themselves um, who uh, is responsible for signing consents and those kinds of things. Yeah. These kinds of issues are something I'll be needing to think about in a few years. My son is 12 and I haven't even started to think about that kind of stuff, so. Right, well, one of the really important things to keep in mind about conservatorship is that there is a middle ground. Um, you can have a, a young person who's not conserved, but is amenable to guide. This is what we do with my son. He's not conserved, but because he is open to hearing guidance and he, Think, you know, makes good decisions when when he's, you know, guided through that. So there are ways of working with young people to help them make responsible and safe decisions without having to go that full step of taking all of those rights away. Um, now, there's times where conservatorship is necessary and, and it is necessary to that the 
that the person doesn't have those full range of adult rights. But if you can manage a way for that young person to maintain more autonomy, more self-direction, um, that's also where the the um, the, the uh, self-direction comes in uh, with the self-advocacy. You'd mentioned people who had had inappropriate treatments growing up and what kind of anger they might have. What we're hearing from now are adults who were raised using behavioral methods who are so strongly opposed to them. And, um, and the Autism Self-Advocacy Network is a, is a, is a night, their, their motto is nothing about me without me, um, which I, I just love that. But um, here in California, we have, um, Recently, the self-determination program has um, opened up to any individuals who uh, want it, who go through the, the training. Um, it's a method of funding through the funds that come from the Department of Developmental Services through here in California, we have the regional centers. There's other states across the country that also use self-determination. But the basic idea is through developing a person-centered plan that looks at the broad, the big picture of what the young person's needs and desires and strengths and, and uh, are, is the, to define services in a way that's very individualized for that person. So for example, in our young adult group, we have one uh, young man, one of his goals was to be in good physical shape. Well, one of the services in his person-centered plan is um, that he has a personal trainer. So when we, in the young adult group, when we, we were uh, checking in and people were asking, what did you do yesterday? He said, I went to the gym. And then when we asked him more about that, he said, well, my, my trainer helped me do this and this and this. Um, and so the, the, the potential for self-determination to tailor the services um, closer and closer to what the young person needs is, um, it fits in, it, it dovetails very nicely with the whole notion of self-advocacy, of becoming more and more responsible for yourself in the world, um, being able to set your goals and, and work toward them, uh, being able to um, make the kinds of changes in your life that you want to have, not just be somebody that has all these things happen to them, but, but to be the active driver, to be the person in the driver's seat, um, setting, uh, setting out the, the direction for the future. It's really, really important. Do you have any general takeaways from watching the trajectory of many children's lives? <laughs> um, well, I think that the, the, the point that you made is, uh, is really important to not make an assumption um, of a limitation um, to, and at the same time, you know, we, we don't want to put pressure on of unrealistic expectations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fine line. Um, but I, I do think that um, generally speaking, now the, the situation I described earlier where the, um, the young woman's mother was saying, you know, that she'd respond well to a children's video. The, the mother turned out to be absolutely right. Um, and that's, you know, whereas I was like, well, no, we, let's do give them only adult things. No, you, you have to individualize it. Um, and, uh, you know, and another example would be a young person who just loves the wiggles. Well, um, if they love the wiggles, even though it's driving the parents crazy at this point, let's figure out how to use that interest to build all of these skills. So with the young person who loves the wiggles, 
what we did was said, okay, well, when, when are they coming out here for a concert? And what do you need to do to get to that Wiggles concert? Um, you know, how are you going to get there? How Oh, you need tickets. How are you going to get tickets? Oh, the tickets cost money. Okay. How are you going to get the money to pay the tickets? Oh, you're going to do some odd jobs. Great. Okay. How are you going to get there? How are you going to get to the concert? Are your parents going to take you? Do you need to, you know, what are, what are your choices? And so they work through all of these steps and we use what may seem to be an age inappropriate um, interest to build these age appropriate skills. Yeah, and I wonder if you've had this experience that I've heard from other uh, caregivers where the child, for instance, has an incredible interest in Mickey Mouse. And now, unlike you, we don't live by Disneyland. <laughs> we're, in, <laughs> we're in Toronto. So um, going to Disney, Disney World in Florida would be um, pretty much the, the number one option. And the family went and the child could not handle it, did not like being there. It was too overwhelming. There was too many people. And so this love of Mickey and having this Mickey stuffed animal with him all the time and and just, you know, everything Mickey, 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 but going to Disney World did not work. Yeah, <laughs> it's, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? And, and, and yet you can kind of see where, you know, the role of Mickey in his life was a, a safety thing right and then here it is this overwhelming world um and how how to cope with that so um i hope it didn't uh, wreck his love of mickey no no he still loves mickey but um <laughs> luckily the caregivers are warm and loving and supportive so they were able to you know turn it into oh that's okay we're gonna do this instead and and it was still an enjoyable trip but right. um well, you know, we, I, I remember going to Disneyland with my son when he was, oh, maybe five uh, years old or so. And uh, for him, the, the, the biggest attract, he was super, super excited, but he was so excited that what he needed to do was to spend an hour in the locker room opening and closing the locker. And, you know, on the one hand, it may seem like, oh, you let him do that, you know, but Yes, that was what he needed to do, and uh, it, 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 he regulated, and then he was able to go and enjoy the the rest of the day. Um, another real interesting example along those lines is my son used to be so overwhelmed with the excitement of Christmas that we had a number of years where every Christmas somebody somebody got bitten. He he was just too excited and he bit somebody. Um, and one year he'd gotten a present for his sister that he was so excited about giving her, but he was so excited that he had to go in the other room. He had to like stay in the other room like the whole time. And then when it was time to give her the present, he grabbed the present and he ran into the room where everybody was doing the gift exchange. He gave her the gift. And as soon as she opened it, he ran out of the room again and nobody got bit. Uh, it was such a nice example of him learning how he needed to regulate himself. And he had that excitement, um, but he, he knew that I, I can't stay in here. I need to go get to a quiet spot so that I, so that I can manage it. 
And I love that example because that brings us to the topic that you said was so important to you when we discussed doing the podcast in the first place, which was helping ch um, children and young adults get to that place of self-advocacy and being able to regulate themselves and and have that awareness like your son did with his sister. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in some ways, I think that, you know, the question of what do we do in the child and family counseling department? I think in a nutshell, that's that's really it. That's the that's the primary. So many of the other things that revolve around that come down to that kind of core uh, skill is being able to use the relationships in our life to help us manage our own feelings so that we can enrich, build and enrich those relationships further. Yeah, and how do you get reluctant parents on board? So you understood that your son needed to open and close the lockers and you understood right. that that your son didn't mean to bite people and hurt them. You don't want to punish him for that because he, he didn't mean to do it. It wasn't intentional. Just like when my son was little, he went through this phase of slapping everybody on the face because he wanted to see that reaction um, mm -hmm. because he slapped it's his dad. He slapped his dad when his dad was brushing his teeth and the dad dad gave him such a big reaction and dad's usually very non-reactive. So it's like, ooh, I can have an effect on people and let's experiment with this, but it wasn't malicious or, so you might have, um, I, certainly families, hopefully families are more understanding, but like school systems where no, that is not allowed. You're going into segregation now, or hopefully schools don't do that anymore, but I hear stories that they do. Um, do you get the opportunity to really work with the child's schools if they're in a public school or, or the family who might say, no, we have to stop this biting now <laughs> without looking right. at that underlying cause? Right. Well, um, we have done some work with schools. Um, for the most part, of course, uh, schools have their own counselors, and so they tend not to... Um, contract with us all that often but sometimes a, a parent is you know feeling so strongly that we need to bring more of a dir approach into the school and in in that case we have had situations where uh we've been where we have a contract with the school to to come in and and provide some counseling um and it is frequently a, a matter of uh helping the teachers to look at things with this other perspective um we're also able to use things like uh, the children's artwork their drawings as ways of of expressing themselves that's a, a nice thing to do in a, in a class uh in a classroom situation um and uh it we haven't done as much of that as as perhaps i might like to um but another example would be with the younger uh, children and head starts where in addition to doing some general training with the teachers where we talk about this whole different way of looking at the behaviors that are problems in Head Start are usually things like non-compliance and you know running around and, and not not following directions and and uh, and sometimes some aggressive behaviors. And um, in the Head Start, we've been able to spend more time both doing training with the teachers and also individually consulting around 
specific children that the teachers have concerns about or that they have particular um, worries about how to um, engage those, those children. Um, and in those cases, we've been able to provide more of a hands-on one-on-one, actually working directly with the teachers or the teacher's aides to show how you can use the interaction around a toy to build those milestones, to, to, um, to start with that engagement, find out what engages the child and, and to um, move from that into the back and forth um, of communication and how important those, those milestones are in uh, helping the child to regulate and then be able to participate more in the uh, in the classroom. And I imagine the same with parents, just bringing, bringing it right back to the DIR model, like where is child developmentally? Let's, let's work on that regulation, make them feel safe, follow the lead. Like you said, how do we get that engagement? And, and it's all about getting those circles of communication to be able to regulate and, and um, be able to communicate with someone else. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's um, one of the things that uh, has been great about being at PCDA for 15 years is that that question of how to get parents on board, I find that I'm more often um, able to do it now than I was 10 years ago, um, because I do have more, um, you know, the more experience that I have with it, the easier I think it is for the, the parents to um, uh, hear the things that I'm sharing with them. Definitely. Do you do um, in your in as part of your family counseling, do you do marriage therapy as well? Like you did mention a boy who had anger about his parents divorce. Um, right. I imagine there some, you know, it floor times a family approach. So the approach needs to address family issues. And if there's some tug and pull between parents on how to raise the child, uh, that can cause conflicts. Do you get that that type of client situation in your practice? Well, it's such an interesting question and, and uh, uh, situation because the part of the way that we structure our interventions is that we do, ideally we have two sessions a week. So we have one session that is the child with the parent or parents, and then one session that's just with the parent or parents. Um, there is somewhat of a, I think where it gets difficulty is, is if a family doesn't have access to other sources, like if they if they don't have adequate insurance to have um, uh, family counseling, that kind of thing. But it's it's really outside of our um, bailiwick. It's it's outside of you know what we're charged to do um, by our our funders. Um, you know we are the 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 child is is the you know the designated client and while we do work with the family and the family system is crucial and there are certainly times that we um, talk about things with the parents usually we try to keep those conversations around how do the parents engage with the child um, and we refer them out for relationship issues that are you know specific between the the parents um, you know, occasionally we get into uh, a little bit of that, but for the most part, we really are, are, are trying to keep it focused on um, what is the, you know, sometimes the parents will have such a different emotional response to what's happening with the child. And, uh, and the one parent may feel the other one's, you know, 
doing it all wrong. And then it's, uh, we have to work especially hard to bring in the parent that is maybe not using as much of a relationship oriented approach and, and really focus some attention on that person so that that person you know, feels understood and feels that they're a part of the process and that their role is important and that the, what they desire for their child is important. And hopefully we can give them some uh, thoughts or ideas about an, another way of approaching it that they can ultimately find more joyful um, and more effective. So the, the fact that it's both more fun and, and that it works, um, ends up being, you know, a lot of the time, that's what saves the day. And the fact that because it is enjoyable, the kids love it. They want to come back all the time. And uh, many times I've heard the family say things like, you know, that their child drags them to therapy that day. Um, so, you, you know, you're on the right track when, um, when people are feeling good about uh, the experience. Have you had situations where you've had families come in that, that just seem really rigid in their beliefs and, and they're not relationship-based and you've managed to see that real turnaround um, and the impact that it has. Um, yes, yeah, um, I can think of uh, some family, part of what's you know tricky of course, is you have to have enough of a therapeutic alliance um, to make it through the, that sort of initial stage of distrust. Um, because uh, sometimes we will get kind of a skeptical um, uh, look from the parents or they'll, they'll say, well, that, you know, that's, that's not how I was brought up, you know? And, and frequently that it's the, that's the main uh, argument, you know? I mean, that's the main reason for the, um, for the reluctance is that this isn't the way that I have, grown up thinking that a responsible parent is going to interact, you know, and, and part of it is, you know, being clear that we're not talking about abdicating responsibility. We're not saying that as a parent, you have no authority. You do have authority. You have, you have very strong parental authority. It's legitimate. It's real. Um, and, and it needs to be respected. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Chamberlain, for meeting today and describing about the wonderful services at PCDA in the Child and Family Counseling and the Young Adults Group. Um, it, if parents have any comments, questions, shared experiences you want to put in the comments section at affectautism.com, this is the part three of the PCDA series. You can type in PCDA and that should pop up in the search. And uh, for anyone else who may have only caught the audio and wants to link to some of the things we talked about, I'll put links in the blog post as well. So thank you very much, Dr. Chamberlain. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daria Brown, and I hope you're enjoying the podcasts at Affect Autism. Did you know you can get bonuses by becoming a member for as little as $5 US per month? Check it out at patreon.com slash affectautism. Thank you for your show of appreciation. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions.